Good morning. Fun morning, huh? My name is Brock. I'm one of the pastors here at Our Lords, where we're a community of worship and formation on mission with Jesus. And we've got some of the cutest kids in town. Is that right? I want to warn uh, Race's family. He grabbed my bracelet. So I think we may have a future jewelry wearer. (laughs) Of course, I was praying for him, but he grabbed my bracelet and I was like, okay, maybe a little fashion style there, like Ronnie Ladd. (laughs) Runs in the family. So today we're beginning a new series on 1 Corinthians. I am looking forward to this. This is a fascinating letter written to help a troubled church teaching them how to embrace the gospel and walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. Some of the the issues that they dealt with, we're dealing with today. Listen to some of these things. Staying unified around particular leaders that are servant-hearted. Relying on the power of God versus relying on yourself or your wealth or your reputation. Walking in sexual purity and holiness. Dealing with conflict in healthy ways. This letter has a lot to say to us. And so each week we're going to be coming together and we're going to recognize that this letter will speak to us with prophetic insight. We're going to see it was written about AD 53, but it is like it was written last week. So it's going to, each time we open it up, it's going to speak prophetically right into us individually and into the heart of our community, and it's also gonna be like a blueprint for us as we continue to lay solid foundations and establish our vision, our mission, 1 Corinthians is gonna be speaking to us. It was a, a letter of apostolic instruction for the first century Corinthian church, and it's gonna speak with apostolic power to us in 2019. Now I wanna say this today, If you're visiting, if you're new, we're glad you're here. I am going to be putting this particular book in historical context. And I think it's important to do that this first Sunday, kind of front load so that we have an idea of the original audience, the place, the people. It's really important if the text is gonna speak to us for us to know a little bit about these people. I'm not gonna bore you. Right? Some of you know I've got a professor background and this is the kind of stuff we could really geek out on. But I'm just going to share just enough because I think it will. It will shed some light on the letter in ways hopefully that some of us haven't seen before. Um, As we look at this first century church, I want us to look at some of the particular things about it. We can look at the, the first slide here so you can even see after this one. Um, It's going to speak to us in a big picture way. I've already mentioned this. Let's move on to the next slide. I'm going to show you a picture of actually where Corinth is. And this kind of blends together old and new, this part of the world here. But you can see Corinth right there, the red dot, strategically located city. It was very cosmopolitan. One uh, commentator says that it was like New York, Las Vegas, and Los Angeles all intermingled. What 
a city. Paul planted a church there around 50 or 51 AD on his second missionary journey. Um, And he wrote this letter from Ephesus. So he was there for about 18 months and then he went to Ephesus and wrote this letter. This city was actually rebuilt. It was known as New Corinth. It was only about 100 years old. The city was destroyed and Julius Caesar, about 45 years before Christ said, it's time to rebuild Corinth. So it was a rebuilt city and it was full of financial opportunities. It was a place to climb, kind of like America, the Corinthian dream, the American dream where you could go and build a life. Its location could not have been more strategic. If you look here, Corinth, really bridged Asia, and Italy's not on here, but it's kind of the upper left to the west here. It was right at the center. It was a hub city. So Paul, in picking that city, was doing something very strategic for the gospel and the kingdom of God in establishing this church here. The place was wild. The city of Corinth was on trend. It was the cutting edge, fashion, Uh, schools of thought, philosophy. There were actually peddlers of wisdom who would walk around the streets sharing new ideas, displaying how much knowledge they had and in kind of the, the spirit of Socrates and some of the other philosophers. So this will help us understand when Paul says, I don't come to you with clever words of wisdom. Paul says what? I come to you with the word of the cross the message of the cross, and it's offensive. So all these people wanted to hear the latest ideas. Tell me the latest idea. What's wisdom? What's insight? And Paul says, you know what? I'm bringing a gospel, good news of a crucified Messiah, really against the grain of all of this. Some of you may have heard this before, but the word Corinthian was used to speak about sexual looseness. So if you were even outside of Corinth and someone mentioned he or she was a Corinthian, it wasn't really a a favorable term to use. And yet Paul chooses to plant a church right in the heart of Corinth. And what we'll see in the opening few verses here, which we're going to look at shortly, is that he's going to subvert the ancient meaning of Corinthian and turn it into saint. He's going to pick the most unlikely place to plant a church and for them to be known as holy people, raised up by a gracious, loving God. So it's a cosmopolitan city. Something else that's really important to note here is that they actually had an Olympian games here. It was called the Isthmian games because it was on the Isthmus of, how's that for a word of the day? Say Isthmus, Isthmus. So you can go and talk about the Isthmian games at lunch. It was held every uh, two years, and it was under the patronage of Corinth. So they had the Olympic Games in Athens, and then every alternate year, every two years, they had the Corinthian Games here, and it was an extravagant festival. Religiously, athletically, the arts, people came from all over the empire to Corinth. Paul was there in 51 AD, so he was there for the Olympic Games. Listen to what Paul did. All of a sudden, his tent making takes on new meaning. Some of you know that in the book of Acts, Paul talks about being a tent maker. Well, when these thousands of athletes and tens of thousands of spectators would descend on Corinth, there was no one, there was nowhere for them to stay. So what did Paul do? Being the genius 
businessman that he was. He said, I'm going to make tents for the people. And so he would make and sell tents. God is into business. Here we have the greatest apostle in the New Testament. He was a businessman. I get an amen on that? God loves business. Who's a better idea generator than God for business? So I think that's a model here for for us that Paul moves in apostolic power, bringing the message of the cross, and in a very practical, pragmatic way, he's helping people stay comfortably in the city of Corinth. A third thing very quickly here is Corinth in the first century was a melting pot. It was a religious and spiritual melting pot. It was kind of a a buffet. The old and the new religions existed side by side and their, their attitude was, if it's a religion of spirituality, we'll take it. A smorgasbord, let's just add it to the selection here. And so Paul was dealing with this. There was a nearby temple And when the games, the Isthmian games were taking place, it was all done in the honor of the god Poseidon, the god of the sea. And so this is some of the the milieu, the context in which Paul was ministering. This is something that's difficult for us to understand, but there was something called the imperial cult. People worshiped the emperor. So imagine when Paul talks about people calling on the Lord Jesus Christ the king, Jesus Christ. How do you think the Roman Empire felt about that? Not so good. Wait, Caesar is king. Caesar is the Lord. And Paul comes in and says, no, Jesus is the Lord. So I think this letter is going to show us then and now we are counter-cultural people. My friends, if you are a Christian, you don't take a stand for the Democratic Party or the Republican Party, or the Libertarian Party. That is not your ultimate identity. You are a Christian, and you call on the Lord Jesus Christ. Not President so-and-so, not Secretary so-and-so. We are devoted to him, and that's what brings us together. Now, you know I'm politically involved, and I think it's a, I'm not saying unplug from that, but I'm saying our ultimate allegiance is not to any of these political structures, but to the Lord Jesus. And we'll see Paul talk about that in these first few verses. Let me just tell you a little bit of the big picture that we're gonna see in this letter of 16 chapters. Paul is going to talk in chapters one and two about being a people of the cross. So he takes the cross and plants it right in New York, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas. And he says, people, this is the message we bear not being cool, not being trendy, not having allegiance to the emperor, but we follow a crucified Jesus. So this letter, frankly, is going to make us feel pretty uncomfortable at times. Preparing for this has been very challenging. Secondly, Paul's gonna talk about being a people of the spirit, not relying on ourselves, not relying on clever ideas or programs, but saying, Holy Spirit, if you are not with us, moving among us, we're nothing. And so Paul is going to tell us in this letter that we are called to be people of the Spirit. As we'll see today, he also talks about being people of holiness in chapters five through seven, being holy and pure in our relationships with one another, in our sexuality, in marriage, in all our relationships. 
He says in chapters eight through 11, he talks about being people of freedom. Again, I'm giving you a bird's eye view and we'll go down and look in these in greater detail in chapters eight through 11. And freedom for him does not mean freedom that we're used to, American freedom. It's something very different. And then in chapters 12 through 14, really the heart of the letter, he talks about being people of worship. So being people of the cross means that we are people who live a life of worship. And he's gonna talk about the Lord's Supper, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, corporate gatherings. And then finally in his letter, he's gonna talk about being people of the resurrection. Chapter 15 is the most important chapter in the entire New Testament about the resurrection of Jesus and about the resurrection of his followers. So that gives you an idea of the big picture view And I want us to think for a moment here, okay? This is part of being people of the Spirit. We love to study the Word of God. I love this stuff. I get excited reading commentaries. But I tell you, each week, if we do not catch a glimpse of God through the text, we're missing it. So my invitation to you this morning is to search for the face of God in scripture. That is what we are after. And these kinds of things can help us looking at historical context and learning a little bit, but ultimately that is what we're after. Lord, we want to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus through the word of God. Isn't that right? Otherwise we're just coming here and you're hearing some different people teach about a book and that is not what we're after. In light of that, as we catch a glimpse of this glorious God that's made us for relationship with him, God shows us who we are. God says, this is who you are. Do you see me? Do you see my love, my glory, my grace? This is who you are. And so our identity flows out of a vision of God. And that is what this entire series is going to be about, a vision of God and a a vision of being his people. So let's look at the first few verses here, and you'll see each week, we're gonna take a bite-sized text. We're not gonna go through 15 or 20 verses. Typically, we're gonna take just some significant pieces here, and we're gonna walk through some of the, the verses here. Why do we do that? I would wait for a show of hands. One reason is, Because we're modeling each Sunday what it's like to be a Christian during the week. We're people of the scriptures. We're people of the word of God. And so what we want to do in a very ordinary, approachable way is walk through the Bible together and say, hey, this is how you look for key words. Why is God putting this here? What, What is it? What does this say to me? What did it say to them? So with that in mind, let's look at the first three verses here of 1 Corinthians 1, 1 to 3. I'm going to read them, make some comments on some of the key features here, and then we'll have some ministry time. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Nearly all the letters 
in Paul's day were framed this way. It named the author, the addressee, the person who was receiving the letter, and then there was a greeting. Paul took this form of letter writing and infused it with Christian meaning. So they might call on gods from the Greek pantheon. Paul says, no, you got it wrong. There's only one God, the God of Israel. There's only one Lord, Jesus. So Paul is giving new meaning even to this ancient way that letters were written. The first part here, if you look, Paul the apostle, a little bit of commentary on this. Paul may have actually been making fun of himself here. He's using a Greek form of his name, Paulos, that meant small. And so Paul is saying at the beginning of this letter, yes, I'm an apostle. I'm sent by Jesus, but you know what? I'm small. I'm really not that significant. Like John the Baptist said, he must increase, I must decrease. And so the Christian tradition thinks that maybe Paul was a man of short stature. We don't know, but he wore that gladly. He was small, a man of little significance who served a great God. He wasn't an ordinary guy. As you know, he got knocked off his horse. The book of Acts talks about that. He was persecuting the church. And Jesus said, I want this guy. I want him. The most unlikely person is going to be the greatest apostle of mine. And so Paul, the text tells us, was a messenger. He was sent on a mission. And that's really what the word means. Apostle is apostolos. And it means someone sent on a mission as an emissary to bring a message. The word apostle sometimes gets thrown around lightly. It originally was meant for those first 12. Those were apostles. They saw Jesus, they hung out with him, they held on to his every word, they ate meals with him, and they were sent out into the world, except one of them, Judas, to be emissaries. It's also used in the New Testament, someone like Paul, who wasn't there with Jesus, but he saw the resurrected Jesus. So the New Testament makes it pretty clear that historically, for someone to be an apostle means they have seen the resurrected Jesus. And Paul's going to explain this. He's going to talk about what it means to be an apostle because there's a lot of false ones out there in his day. And so he's going to say, an apostle comes and they plant churches. They've seen the resurrected Jesus and signs and wonders follow the message to demonstrate the veracity, the truth of the message. So Paul is one of these. He is an apostle. He's an apostle of who? Of Christ Jesus. Look at the text here. He is the emissary of Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. He's not a slick or skilled orator. We know he could have been. He probably could have preached a mean passage. He was educated, learned, had the scriptures memorized, but he came in trembling and fear and weakness with a thorn in his side. God worked deeply in this man. He was an apostle of Christ Jesus. Here is what is amazing. We can talk about these folks back here. 2,000 years ago, you are called to be an apostolic people. Did that sink in? You are an apostolic person. If you are a follower of Jesus, you're in an apostolic community. 
a community that's filled with the same Holy Spirit that rested on Jesus. I, does that bounce off your brain? Bounces off my, you, like Paul, like the original 12, are commissioned to take the gospel into your workplace, into your school, into your families, wherever you are, you are an apostolic people. And Paul's going to remind us of that over and over again. Paul says that this isn't just something on a whim, but he's actually an apostle of Christ Jesus by what? The will of God. This enabled Paul to face anything. And we know people like to throw rocks at this guy. He would go into a town and they stoned him. They dragged him outside the city. He was shipwrecked multiple times. This dude lived an intense life. But what? He was unstoppable. Nothing could stop him. Something got in his bloodstream, in his heart. He said, I am an emissary of Christ Jesus and I ain't stopping till my last breath. By the will of God. So you are an apostolic people by the will of God. You're in a local church that's been established by the will of God. What's he say? Who who is with him here? This guy named Sosthenes. Most of us have not heard of Sosthenes. I hadn't thought of him in quite a while until I reread this. But he's important. The book of Acts says that he may have been the synagogue leader in the city of Corinth, a fellow Jew. Paul won him over through the gospel. It cost Sosthenes everything to be a follower of Jesus. And so Paul's addressing the church at Corinth and saying, I've got my bro Sosthenes with me. And Typically what happened in the ancient world is you mention someone because they're writing the letter for you. And scholars think that Paul had some eyesight problems and wasn't a, he, he admits in Galatians and other places his handwriting was terrible. So he had to have what's called an amanuensis, a secretary. And his brother Sosthenes here may have been the one who was writing this very letter. So he's important. The next part here at verse two, what's it say? To the church of God. In Corinth, the Greek actually means the assembly of Yahweh. So what Paul is saying as a good Jewish man is that Christians, you're part of something bigger. You are rooted in the people of God. Do you remember way back there in Exodus when God set the slave people free? You're part of that group, the assembly of Yahweh. You've been chosen You've been drawn out. God is setting you free to be his people. These are big, juicy theological words here. This is yummy stuff. He says, as the historic rooted people of God, what are we like here? We're sanctified in Christ Jesus. I don't know about you, but this is one of those Christianese words that... We may have kind of grown deaf to a little bit, but sanctified is a powerful word. It actually is rooted in the Old Testament. Paul is saying, you are made for the presence 
of the Holy King. It's the same word that's used for those utensils that are used in the very Holy of Holies. What Paul is saying here, two people in New York, Los Angeles, Las Vegas, Corinth, you're holy. You are sanctified. I kept picturing, you know, a golden chalice that one of the priests would have used. That's the image that the, the wine of the presence poured in and the Lord himself finding great pleasure in this. And so many times, I don't know why, I'm not a golden chalice, but I think I'm a pooper scooper. <laughs> I'm not acting like a sanctified or I'm not thinking like, dude, I'm sanctified. I am holy. I am set apart body, soul, and spirit for the presence of the Holy King. I'm acting like a pooper scooper. So what Paul is saying to us, be a holy utensil of the King. That's who you are. If you put your faith in Jesus, you are sanctified. You are saved and you're being transformed into his image. He says we're called, like Paul was called to be an apostle, what does the text say here? The church of God in Corinth, the church of God in Oklahoma City is called to be what? A saint. This is a misunderstood word. Some of us trash talk those Catholics and others and we're kind of fearful of saints. We shouldn't be. It's a biblical word. It means a holy one. You're a saint, church. My friends, you're saints. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you and makes you holy. Wear that as a badge. I'm a saint. I'm a golden vessel. I'm not trashy. I'm not a pooper scooper. I am a sanctified saint of the living God. Paul loved this word. In Ephesians 4, he says that the, his whole mission in life was to equip who? The saints, the holy ones. So he spent all of his days equipping the church. What do saints do? The text says that saints call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I couldn't help but think of the historic Jesus prayer, which I keep bringing up to you because it saves my bacon every week. The Jesus prayer, the 10 words that have been prayed for 2,000 years. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. That is what Paul is talking about here. What's the text say? Call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not something that Paul thought was rote. Nor when you say, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, are you begging? Do we beg, church? No, it's there. You're calling on the name above all names. Lord Jesus, will you act on my behalf? Lord Jesus, will you save my wayward son? Lord Jesus, will you save my marriage? Is there a better name that you can call on? No. We are saints. We are sanctified people who call on the name of the Lord Jesus. I reference that we have some little booklets, some guides on the Jesus prayer out in the comments on the bookshelf, and I would encourage you to get one. And the opening page says that the Jesus prayer helps us do this, to look on God. So there's a story of a guy who wrote the little booklet and he said, I use the Jesus prayer because it helps me look on God as God looks on me. So it's deep, it's rich. 
Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. And it can be with us whenever and wherever we are. Finally here, Paul talks about grace and peace. The Greek word charis, the Greek word for peace is irene. And so Paul is saying charis and irene to the church. Again, these are words that we can tune out. For me to say grace and peace, you may tune out a little bit. These are key words for Paul. There may not be two more important words in his entire theological vision. Grace is the sum total of who God is and what God does. So Paul is saying the fullness of God be to you, church of Corinth. Be infused with the fullness of God. And what does that do? It brings peace. Your life may be a wreck, may be a mess, and God, Paul is saying, brings shalom, well-being. He changes everything. The grace of God shows up. Why is it so difficult for us at times to receive the grace of God? Paul is reminding the church of Corinth, reminding us here in 2019, grace, the sum total of who God is and what God does, be with you and your spirit. Amanda and I were in a, not Amanda and I, it's a Freudian slip because I wanted her with me. I took Mia on a 16th birthday trip and we went to San Francisco, a modern day Corinth. And I was thinking about this passage and we were in the airport at Dallas and I went to go get drinks, to go get a couple of Icy's Slurpees. And when I came back, Mia was there with a three-year-old and a young mom. And I was just wondering, what is she up to? I leave for five minutes and here she is and this kid is like in her lap and they're playing together and Mia opened their hearts up. This young mom was actually flying back to Oakland because her father had been murdered. And so this 22-year-old mom who was a wreck, understandably so, was sitting there next to Mia and Mia leaned over and she brought grace and peace to this woman and her three-year-old daughter. And I just sat back and watched. Mia, she's not here today, so I can tell this story on her, 16-year-old, carries the grace and peace of God. And she brought the grace and peace of God in that airport situation and touched that woman's life. We carry the grace and peace of God with us. Do we not? Why don't you turn to the person next to you and say, you carry the grace and peace of God. Now turn to the other person on the other side and tell them. The fullness of God, the fullness of God's saving activity and the shalom of God. Now we'd be remiss here if we didn't notice this letter, church, is going to be God intoxicated. It's a God-centered letter. It's really not about the church. It's about God. It's about the Lord of the church. So just very quickly here, Paul is, he says he's an apostle of who? Christ Jesus. The Corinthians are sanctified how? In Christ Jesus. They call on who? The name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace come from who? The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This dude is drunk with Jesus. 
Here's three verses, and he's already saying, I cannot get enough of Jesus and of the love of the Father. So he's setting that course for us, and in the coming weeks, we're going to look at that. Each week, we will be encountering the grace and peace of God. And the message that 1 Corinthians brought rocked the city of Corinth to the core. I think that it's going to wreak some holy havoc in our lives too. So I'm going to invite you each week. Next week, we're going to look at the next six verses. So perhaps we could take the next few months and you could meditate. We could meditate together on some sections from Corinth. Some of us are looking consistently for places to read in the Bible. Why not together as a church, why don't we spend some, some days and weeks in the letter of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, how does that sound? So next week we'll be looking at the introduction and the thanksgiving, so the next six or seven verses here, and we will catch some glimpses of God and who we are in Jesus. Why don't we stand?